everybody. Merry Christmas. Some high church folks say you can't say that because we're not in Christmas time. We're in Advent, and that's different from Christmas, but I say bah. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to go to the back, your, your teacher will meet you. Um, as they're going, why don't we open in a, a word of prayer? Join me if you would. Lord, uh, the Christmas carols always remind me of the, the great blessing it is to be able to sing great theology in public, to hear um, the first Noel playing in a, a, a mall or joy to the world at the shopping center. Lord, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing that you do, that we, we still hold on to these traditions of truth. And Lord, I pray that, um, that you would use your Christmas carols to remind people of who they are and who you are. Uh, Lord, it's not going to sneak in subliminally that somebody's going to hear joy to the world and suddenly say, ah, Jesus is Lord. But um, Lord, the truth is out there and, uh, and it's good to hear. So bless our, our Christmas season, we pray, that uh, Christ would be exalted, um, if not in the hearts of our nation, at least in the hearts of our people. Uh, so be with us now as we look to the prophet Hosea to see what he had to say about the coming Messiah, how uh, he prepared Israel and us to receive her king. And Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So third Sunday of Advent, remember the first Sunday was uh, Malachi, and Malachi took place after Israel had returned from exile, after they built the temple. Uh, they started getting slack in their practices, and so Malachi came to call them back to be faithful to the Lord. And then um, last week was uh, Zechariah, and Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. They were writing, they were prophesying during the time when Israel had returned and, and started rebuilding the temple, and then they stopped. And so God sent them prophets to remind them and to encourage them. And totally unintentional, but this time we're moving even further back in time. Now we're going to the period before the exile, before Israel has been brought down. And so Hosea writes, he tells us right up, up front in chapter 1, verse 1, that he came and he prophesied during the times of these kings. And, and this is towards the end of the, the existence of Israel. They're getting ready to be taken out by the Assyrians. It's, it's almost their day of reckoning. And Hosea writes to them. So uh, I, like I said, I didn't do that on purpose. I didn't intend to march backward in time, but it kind of works. Um, so when, when we look at the, the book of Hosea, it's 14 chapters. It's kind of a long book. There's really no good way to summarize the entire thing. But uh, I was helped by checking out a sermon uh, from John Piper from 1982. And I listened to it, and he's got this little boy voice. I mean, it was just amazing because you hear Piper now, and he's, he's been preaching for a long time, but then he was brand new. And uh, he, he set me on the right course because he said, really, the way Hosea breaks out is... The first three chapters of Hosea are this personal, intimate story. And then chapters 4 through 14 are really just collections of, of Hosea's messages to the nations. Uh, as he went and he preached to Israel, primarily to Israel, some to Judah, but primarily to Israel. Um, so that's how the, the book breaks out. And so the way to really get at what Hosea is talking about is for us to focus on those first three chapters. And so that's what I'm going to do, because I think if we get the first three chapters down, if you read the rest of it, you'll see how it fits together. You'll see how, how that works. And so that's what I'm going to try to do is just look at those first three chapters. And it's kind of nice because the first three chapters break out for our outline, three-point outline, right? 
that that's that's like unlocking a pastor's merit badge to get a three-point outline. So uh, the the way the three chapters are going to line up is the first chapter is about the adultery of God's people, and the second chapter is the betrayal, but finally the third chapter is about the gospel, the hope in all of that. So that's how we're going to break this out, and we're going to look at it. So chapter one, if this is talking about the adultery of God's people. Um, I think the best way to unpack chapter one in a real quick, short scope is to talk about the people that are mentioned in chapter one. Uh, Hosea is this prophet. He is a man of God who is speaking on God's behalf. And right at the beginning, God said, it, it says, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So right off the bat, you get this image of this horrible situation. And one of the questions that comes up is, God told Hosea to go marry Gomer, who is a prostitute. And is that ethical that God should tell this godly man to marry somebody who's like that? who is unpure, who has violated the marriage covenant regularly. And so there's some difference of opinion. Some people think that what's going on is Hosea is not recounting his biography, but he's telling a parable. And that Gomer may be a well-known prostitute in Israel at the time, and he's just kind of saying, telling this parable that, oh, I married this woman and look at these children we had. And that was just like a preaching mechanism. The problem with that, though, is I think it really blunts the force of what God is going to say in chapter 1 if this isn't something real. So when you look at this and you think Hosea was told to go marry a prostitute, how wrong is that? That's horrible. That's exactly the right feeling. You should be morally outraged at this, this what is supposed to be the sacred union between a man and a woman, and the woman in it is just running off after everybody in sight. You, you should be offended by that. It should trouble you that God called him into this marriage. And, and what you do with that trouble is not try to explain it away, but see what the Lord does with it. Where does God lead us in that moral indignation about what happens to marriage? Because what happens in the rest of this is Gomer is just going to keep being Gomer. She's going to keep going and doing her things. And what God says, is he says, look at that. Do you see how wrong that is, Israel? Do you, see how, do you feel the outrage of Hosea married to this woman who doesn't love him, who doesn't care? That's me. That's what you're doing to me, Israel. It should offend you. It should harm you. It should hurt your feelings because it's wrong and stop doing it to me. So that's where God goes with that as he unpacks that. And Gomer is this, this emblem, this picture that he puts forward to say, this is what you're like. And I want you to stop. So if we take it and we say, well, it didn't really happen, it still has some, some moral influence, but I think it lacks the emotional impact of seeing this poor man have to chase his wife down and drag her home. And that's what God says, that's what I'm doing with you, Israel. That's exactly what's happening. And so that's, this is Gomer. She's there to be this offense. She is there to be troublesome to us. And so he goes and he takes her, and they have a child. She conceives a son. It, that first couple of verses, that must have taken a while. It, it didn't happen just overnight where he went and said, hey, want to marry me? Yeah, sure, let's have a baby. Okay, here we go. Um, he must have had to go to her and say, look, I want to marry you. And she's like, really? Yeah, yeah, I, I want us to get married. 
you know who I am, right? And, and it may have taken him a while to convince her, look, it's going to be better for you if we're married than if you're on your own doing this. And so please marry me. And so, okay. And then she has to conceive a son. So this may have been a while. But the first son that, that they have, God says, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Everybody got that, right? Got that whole story? Need me to, I'll, I'll explain it, okay? There's a lot of this that goes on in Hosea. Hosea has a lot, especially in the latter chapters, a lot of cultural clues. Some of them we get, some of them we don't. And this is one of those cultural clues that we may or may not get. Um, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 19, in 1 Kings 19, that's when Elijah takes off. He's just defeated the prophets of Baal, and he, he runs off into the desert because he knows Jezebel's going to take his head off. And so he goes and hides, and he's in a cave, and God comes and says to him, what are you doing? He says, look, Lord, I'm the only one left, and they're going to kill me. And God puts on this majestic show and tells him, no, this is not what's going to happen. And we remember that because he says, look, I have, I have held for myself uh, 700 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. I, you're, there are more people in Israel that I've preserved. Um, and then we forget the rest, what comes next. The next thing that God says to him is he says, now here's what's going to happen. You're going to rise up and you're going to go anoint Jehu, the king of Israel. And you're going to anoint Elisha to be the replacement prophet for you. That's, that's what comes next for you. So this was what God had told him. Now, it doesn't happen right away. There's, there's some more things that go on. In 2 Kings chapter 9, that's when we see this, inter, this uh, actually take place. Elisha is now the prophet in Elijah's place. And Elisha sends one of his men and he says, Okay, go to Jezreel, find Jehu, and anoint him with this oil. And so they go and they anoint Jehu, and Jehu is now comes out. He's, he, he goes into this inner chamber with this prophet, and he comes out, and he's got this kind of dazed look on his face, and his friends who are with him go, what did that man-man say to you? Uh, he told me I'm the king. And so that's exactly what happens is Jehu now becomes the king of Israel, and he goes to Jezreel, which is where Ahab's house was, and he starts killing all of Ahab's family. And this is where Jezebel is thrown out a window, hits the ground and dies and dogs eat her. That happens in Jezreel. It's a real pleasant Christmas message there, right? What, what on earth is, is Hosea bringing this up for? He says, in the house of Jehu, the blood of Jezreel, I will put an end to this kingdom. What he's saying is he's looking at what happened, the way Jehu took the throne was he went and he fought the, the king who was rightly on the throne. And the way he killed him was he took a bow and he launched it and shot through the man, went through his back and came out his heart. And, and he killed him. So God is looking at this and he says, I'm going to hold you accountable, Israel, for the blood of Jezreel. And I'm going to break the bow. So the picture here is this blood has been spilled. There's been horrible bloodshed under Ahab and Jezebel. Most of that was centered out of Jezreel. The way the throne went from the death of Ahab to the, the reign of Jehu, it was back and forth. There was bloodshed. There were people being killed. Jehu himself steps forward and kills a bunch of people. It's just littered with bloodshed. And God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold you accountable for all that blood, and I'm going to break the bow. There will be no more of this succession going on. It's coming to an end. I'm going to judge Israel. So when he mentions Je uh, Jezreel, that's what he's talking about.
So then after Jezreel is born, then Gomer gets pregnant again. And she has a child called Loruma, or the way it's translated in your Bible is no mercy. God tells uh, Hosea, name the child no mercy, because with this coming judgment that's going to come on Israel, I will extend no mercy. I will judge them fully according to all of their sins. Now, it sounds really heartless and, and cruel that God would judge them. It's only been 400 years of absolute unbroken unfaithfulness to him. It's not unfair. God is saying, look, you, if you're going to be like Gomer, if you're going to keep running after these false gods, there is a day of reckoning coming, and don't expect mercy on that day of reckoning. Don't think that I'm just going to put everything on hold for that. You will face the consequences of your sin. And then after Gomer weans Loremu, uh, Loruma, um, she gets pregnant again. And now she has a son, and God says, name him Loami, which means not my people. So the, two, the three children are Jezreel, the blood of Jezreel, the, the violence, the idolatry, no mercy, and not my people. And what's chilling is when he says, call him not my people, he says, you are not my people for you are not my people and I am not your God. What a chilling indictment against these people. And, and you're left hanging with that going, but Lord, are you going to break your covenant with them? Are you going to... You swore to Abraham what you were going to do. How can, how can this be? Well, but there's hope at the end. At the end, very end of the chapter, God goes on and he says, yet. That's one of the best words in the Bible. But or yet. Because what he's announced is judgment is coming on this wayward nation. There's not going to be any mercy. You are not going to be counted as my people. It's going to be horrible. The Assyrians are going to come in and take you away in the most brutal way possible. Yet, there's still hope. He goes on and he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall gather together, and they shall anoint, appoint for themselves one head. So what he's, he's, he's looking further down the future. He's saying judgment is coming on Israel. And the nation has been divided since the days of Solomon, since after the days of Solomon. But there's a time coming where I'm going to wipe out most of the nation Israel, and the nation of Judah is going to go off into exile. And then at a certain point, they'll come together, and they will appoint one head, one king, one person to be over them, and they will be as numerous as the sands of the sea. And they shall anoint, appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So it's still reminding us that there's this, this judgment coming. Why is this a message of hope? Because he says, though you will get no mercy, though you are not my people, yet I'm going to stand by the Abrahamic covenant, and I'm going to bring what's left of you back. And when you come together, you will be as numerous as the sands of the sea. You'll be uncountable, unmeasurable because of my mercy, because of who I am, because of my covenant. Where God goes with this is really 
illustrative. It really helps us understand how God could say on one hand, not my people and no mercy. And on the other hand, I'm going to do these things. And here's where it goes. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is, is answering the question, look, Jesus came and the Jews rejected him. Most of the Jewish nation has turned away from him. Does that mean God's word failed? Because it was his promise. And so in chapter 9, what, God, or what uh, Paul explains is no, because not all Israel is Israel. There's, there's actual hope. God is, what he's doing is not disbanding the Abrahamic covenant. He's filling it in a way you couldn't have imagined. And so at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 22, Paul asks this question, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, mercy which, he prepared hand, uh, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So he's looking back at Israel's history, and this is not something that he just thought of here. You look back at 400 years of Israel's unfaithfulness, and God is, is enduring with them patiently during this time, sending them prophet after prophet after prophet, trying to call them back. And he says, so what if... As you look back at redemptive history, God's dealing with them patiently for a purpose. And now in Paul's day, he looks back at his contemporaries and he says, well, what if it's the same thing going on now? God has, has been patient with Israel since the return from exile as he's waiting, as he's calling. And now his son has come and, and now there's this new inbreaking thing. So then he continues, he says, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So what Paul is saying is he's looking back at history, he's saying God has been enduring with patience these rotten Jews who hate their God and these Gentiles who worship anything that moves and a bunch of stuff that doesn't move. He's been dealing with them patiently because he has a purpose and he's going to gather together a people for his own glory. So he deals with some because they're vessels of wrath. They will contain the wrath of God, the, the blood of Jezreel. And there are some who will contain, who will be filled with the glory of God. And this is where he ties it to Hosea. The next thing he says is, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And who, her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So what, what Hosea is looking forward to, he doesn't even realize what he's seeing. He's seeing this day when God is going to draw all of these people into Israel. He's going to make his people this great multitude that can't be numbered. But first, we have to go through Jezreel. We have to go through the exile. We have to go through the crucifixion. And then in that day, God draws them all together. He pulls them together because of Christ, because Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now they can come in, they can be one people, they can be the people of God. You who were not called the people, who on earth would have thought Jews and Gentiles together would be a people? That just wasn't the, the biblical pattern. But God himself, he says, if you read Hosea right, what you're seeing is God's going to draw these together and make them into a people called his church his people who will worship him. So that's chapter one. That's what's going on in chapter one is this pronouncement of harlotry, of whoredom as, as she goes after this, this, this um, horrible situation. And then in the next chapter, what we get a picture of is what it looks like to, to do this. 
we've kind of got general sketches. What God does in chapter two is he, he draws a clear picture. This is what it means to turn against, to turn away from your God. So verse five, he says, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give to me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So here's the question. When you get to chapter two, you go, who's speaking and who are they speaking of? Is God speaking about Israel or is Hosea talking about Gomer? And this is why I said you can't allegorize this. This, has, this, this needs to be a real thing is if it's both, which I believe it is, I think it's both God and Israel, Hosea and Gomer, then what you get is Hosea's looking to his wife and going, why are you running away from me? I'm offering you a way of life. You can come and live under my roof. You can be my family. And yet look what you're doing. You're running off and you're playing the whore and you're going off after your lovers who will give you bread and water, wool, flax, oil, and drink. And in the same way, in the same way, God is looking at Israel and going, why are you chasing after Baal? Why do you go chasing after him? He can't do a thing for you. And see, Baal worship, it seems like out in left field to us when we look at it externally, when we look at it from this time. If you're in Israel at the time, the temptation to follow Baal makes a lot of sense because Baal was the god of the rains. He was the god of the harvest. At this time, Israel is largely agrarian. They don't have rich oil fields. They don't have gold. They don't have all of these things. What they have is they have very fertile land that will grow crops and that will allow sheep to graze and, and grow in number. And so when they're looking at and, and they're seeing the, the rains aren't coming, the crops not doing well, what's going on? They're, they look to this Baal and he's promising them everything. Hey, look, I'll make it all good. And so the temptation is to go, well, you know what? We've had two years of really poor rain. Maybe we should check out Baal. You know, maybe he's got better fertilizer. Maybe he'll, he'll make things grow better. And so the temptation, the draw of the heart to go after Baal is really strong. And that's exactly what they did is they go after Baal because he's going to provide the water. He's going to provide the crops. And maybe they do that for a couple of years and look, hey, the rains have been good, haven't they? Maybe we were on the wrong side the whole time. And, and it seems reasonable, but it doesn't end there. In verse 7, God slash Hosea continue. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. So it works out pretty well with Baal for a few years. Things are going well. Then all of a sudden, the lovers dry up. They start disappearing. Gomer's income begins to dwindle. She's not getting as many visitors as she was before. So the response is, well... I'll go back to the first one. That'll work. I, I had it pretty good with him. I'll go back to him for a while and see how that works out. And what God is saying is Israel's doing the same thing. You go and you try Baal for a while. And when Baal doesn't work, you think, oh, I'll go back to, uh, to uh, Yahweh. He'll take me back. It'll be good. The point I think he's making here when you look at the response of these two brides is, do either one of them love their husband? 
Have either one of them said, I would never pursue another because I love my husband so dearly? No, they go, well, what's in it for me? Well, Baal's looking good this week. We'll do that. Now Baal's not delivering, so we'll go back to Yahweh and see what he can deliver. Gomer's doing the same thing to Hosea. Hosea, you've been nice. Life's comfortable, but I can do better. And so I'm going to go out and do better. And then once the better dries up, well, Jose, I'm, com- I'm home, sweetheart. Can I come in? Is there any reason to think that either one of these love their husband? They're only interested in their, what they can get from him. What will he give me? And that's it. There's no love. There's no passion. There's, there's no desire to be with him. What we can think, is because we're in the church, right? We believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We believe in election, that our election is sure. We believe in once saved, always saved. So surely this doesn't apply to us. But it does. Because if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul goes through redemptive history, and then he gets to a certain point, and he says, all this was written down so you wouldn't chase idols. And he's talking to the church. The, the difference between Israel at this time and us today is we're just much more sophisticated. We, we haven't absolutely changed as a human race. We're still going to go for what works. What can I get out of this? What's daddy going to deliver this time? And so as, as Christians, as born-again believers, we have a new heart that's inclined towards obedience. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet we're still carrying around this material stuff called a physical body. It hasn't been redeemed yet. It hasn't been resurrected. And so we can sometimes have that same inclination. You have seasons where you're following God and it is going great. I'm, I'm getting these blessed times in Bible study. I can pray and I just feel like God is right there next to me and everything's wonderful. And then we hit times when it's a little dry. We don't feel God's presence so much. I'm going through Leviticus right now, and I just can't get anything out of this. Or I'm looking at numbers, and if I see one more genealogy, I'm going to flip. And, and what can happen is we're looking at that, saying, Lord, what's in this for me? What, what do I get out of this? If I don't get some nugget that I can remember throughout the day, if I don't feel this warm feeling when I'm praying, um, I'm tempted to go someplace else. I'll flip on the TV. I, I, was, I was doing Bible study. I wasn't getting anything out of it. So I pulled out my cell phone and I surfed the internet for 45 hours, minutes, um, because it was more entertaining. And don't any of you tell me I've never done that. I've never been distracted during Bible study. I know we have. And what, what's happening at that point is we're forgetting our husband who loves us. And we're chasing after the next good thing. And so it's startling when God says that that's what's happening, what what is going to happen with our hearts as we begin to draw away from him or draw indifferent to him or become cold. It's like Gomer. So think of yourself next time you start drifting and, and not wanting to do Bible study for a week or two. Just get up in the morning, look yourself in the face in the mirror and say, hi, Gomer, and see how that feels. You see why she must be a real person? Is, is the betrayal just hangs right there. That's the bad news. There is some good news in this chapter as well. God says that he's going to hedge her up. He's going to put thorns around her so she can't go. 
She can't go chasing. He's going to draw her back. And the end of the chapter, or the, the end of the section, it's this long poem. The end of the poem is just beautiful, the way he explains it, verses 14 and 15. After he says, this is what she's been doing, he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So God's response to this is judgment in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he says, I will allure her. I will speak tenderly to her. I'm going to lead her out into the wilderness, and I'm going to woo her with my love for her. It's just such a beautiful and tender picture. And here's the thing that God can do that no husband can ever do. God can rewind and redo the story. He can take her back and say, look, I'm going to take you out in the wilderness, and we're going to do this Exodus thing again. And we'll see how this goes. This time, we'll see if you don't stay with me. And that's the hint that there is there, that Valley of Achor. What's the Valley of Achor? Another one of these cultural hints that you may miss if you don't pay attention. He's talking about the wilderness. That's our first clue. The second thing is this valley. And what has happened here is God has led Israel out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they crossed the River Jordan. And they have this tremendous victory at Jericho. The walls of Jericho fall down. God says, go in and destroy everything. Don't take a thing out of there. We're going we're gonna to just wipe them out totally. And so they do, they take everything, they go trotting off, they destroy the, the city, and then they go up against this tiny little town called Ai, which should be a, a slam dunk. We should be able to just wipe these folks out, and they get their tails waxed. And so Joshua falls back and he says, okay, something's going on here. Lord, what is happening? And Lord reveals to them, somebody has sinned in the camp. And as they begin to investigate, they find Achan has taken a really pretty robe and some silver and some gold, and he's hidden them in his tent. And so once they discover this, they take Achan and his family and they stone them. And they pile up the stones in the valley of Achor. There's this big, huge stone pile. And under there is this sinful family that, that deserted the Lord. Isn't that a bit extreme? It was just a robe. Actually, it is not that extreme because what God had said was, we're going to go into the promised land. I am going to give you everything, every single square foot your foot steps on. I'm going to give it to you. What I want you to do is destroy this city. Don't take anything out of it. It's not going to be all cities. There'll be cities where you'll sack them. You'll take everything you can get out of there. But this city, I want you to start by destroying it utterly. And what Achan said I like the robe better than God. The silver will do me better than obeying God. I can get more out of the gold than being faithful to God. And worse than that, Achan says, and if I hide it, he can't find it. It is this utter betrayal. And so look at what God does with that story. As he says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. In other words, Israel, we're going to do this again. And when we get to the Valley of Achor, it's not going to be destruction because I have spoken to you tenderly. 
because I have wooed you, because I have allured you. When we get to the Valley of Achor, you won't even be tempted to say a robe is better than my God. You, you will follow my orders. You will follow me because you love me. And so that's the beauty of this promise is that it doesn't end there. God goes back and he redoes this. This is why it's important that we saw in Romans chapter 9, God is saying, look, I'm going to draw these people together. They're going to be my people. And they're going to be my people because I have called them, not because they're born to the right folks. They're mine because they're mine. And, and when I call them, I will allure them. This is the Calvinistic doctrine of irresistible grace. In other words, what happens is when God opens your eyes to the glory of Christ, there is no way in the world you would say, oh, I don't want that. The, the grace of God in showing you the glory of Christ and showing you the relationship you can have with him through what Jesus has done is irresistible, not because God's forcing your hands. It's because he opens your eyes, opens your heart, and you go, of course I want that. How would I never want that? And isn't that different than what Achan did in Ai? Of course I want that robe. In this case, it's, of course I want the Lord. He's beautiful. He has done a wonderful thing for me. So that's what betrayal looks like for us. When we start going after the fill-in-the-blank, the position, the power, the looks, the other person, the money, instead of God, when we look to those things and say, that will satisfy me more than God will satisfy me. It is Aiken at AI. It is Gomer saying, I'm going to go find something better. And, and it's a horrible betrayal. So the other thing that's important to see here is, at the end, he says, at that time they shall answer me in the days of her youth, at that time when she came out of the land of Egypt. There's a little more to be said here, and, and we need to unpack this a little bit more. So now I'm going to branch into um, Hosea 11, which, which Aaron read for us this morning. Who is it that comes out of Egypt at this point? Her, Israel, my bride. That's who I called out of Egypt. That's who I allured into the wilderness so that I could woo her. But flip over to chapter 11, and what does God say there? He says, when Israel was a child, wait, I thought she was your bride. Nope, she's a child. He's a child. I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So suddenly God flips the picture. He looks at it in a slightly different way. He says, in, in one sense, she's my, my unfaithful bride. In another sense, he's my son. But what he does in this section, in the, these few verses here, is really interesting. He speaks in the first verse, in 11.1, in the singular first person, or in the singular person, I loved him. And out of uh, Israel, or out of Egypt, I called my son. And then in verse 2, he switches to plural. The more they were called, they, the more they were called, the more they went astray. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning to the idols, burning offerings to the idols. So what God is showing us here, this picture he's painting of this new people that he's calling, it, it pivots on this idea of being called out of Egypt. And there's something different going on. Because in that first instance, when God called them out of Egypt and they wanted to go back to Egypt, they kept whining and complaining. Psalm 95.10 says, For 40 years I loathed 
that generation. And they said, and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So for 40 years, as God is leading them through the wilderness, bringing water out of rocks, causing manna to fall from heaven, littering them with quail, this is how God hates a people. That, that's what his hate looks like. Is I loathe this generation. But now what we're seeing in Hosea is he's saying, look, I'm going to call her and woo her. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I love my son and I called him. And this is really the key that begins to unlock this idea of this reconstituted people of Jew and Gentile together as God's new people. Because in Matthew, it says, talking about the, uh, the, the birth narrative, after Jesus is born and the, the Magi have come and they've talked to Herod, and Herod says, well, where's the baby? Oh, he's, we'll go find him. And then they take off. After that, in verse 13, it says, now when they had departed, the Magi, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That's what we refer to as the destruction of the innocents. It was mass slaughter of anybody under two years old in the regions of Bethlehem. Horrific. Herod was not a good guy. God preserves his son by sending him into Egypt. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So how is it that Jesus is God's son? The context of Hosea is Israel was God's son. The key there is that switch from singular to plural. The key is this promise that you will be as numerous as the sands of the sea. The key is how God now treats Israel. We are God's people because Jesus is God's son. Because this new exodus that we experience is Jesus coming out of Egypt, not us. We're in Jesus and therefore we're, Christ's pe we're God's people. This is the new Israel, is, is Jesus. So in the exodus that we face, God will allure us. He will lead us out of Egypt. He doesn't despise us for 40 years. He leads us into the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham's offspring are going to be as numerous as the sea, uh, sands of the sea. That's the promise of what's happening there. That, that's the hope that we have because of who Jesus is. And one of the things that helped me kind of get my head around this a little bit was Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah 9, God is prophesying about what's going to happen to his nation. By the way, Hosea and Isaiah, uh, Hosea and Isaiah are contemporaries. They're prophesying at the same time to the same people. So they're right next to each other. Amos is in there as well, but these two are contemporaries. So they're probably aware of each other's prophecies. It's not like God would keep them separate or something, right? So Hosea, or Isaiah in chapter 9 says, And though a tenth remain in it, the land, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. So this is Isaiah's version of what's going to happen with this, this judgment on Jezreel, this judgment on Jehu and, and the, the accounting for Jezreel. As he says, though a tenth remain in the land, it's going to be burned again. It's going to be like a stump after you've cut down the tree. And so there's this, this chunk of wood stuck in the ground, and that's it. 
But that's not all he said. I didn't finish the sentence. The last part of the verse, he says, the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed is its stump. So this stump of this tree that's left, what that is, is it's the holy seed. It's the one that will grow up. And do you remember with Zechariah, we talked about the branch? This is the branch. It, it rises from the stump of Jesse. So how God would switch from Israel to Jesus in this metaphor is because he's cutting off Israel. They're going to be like a stump. But the holy seed, the blessed offspring, will rise from that, and that will be in Jesus Christ. So that's where he takes us. Is This is how we get to that. So some people have a problem with uh, Matthew quoting Hosea that way. They say, well, he, he just totally botched it. You know, he yanked it way out of context. But I think really if you go back and read it in context, he had already kind of promised us and prepped us for this idea that there's going to be a change. And, and the Gentiles are going to be brought in and the Jews. And it's going to happen because the one that's coming. So that's that picture there. And then finally, chapter 3. Short chapter. Nice little tiny chapter, but one of the best. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Let me read the entire chapter for you. So sit back, um, you know, try to stay awake. This is going to be, what, four verses, five verses? And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The picture here is an unfaithful wife charging off after everything else, and yet Hosea has to go buy her. He has to go pay the price to win her back, to draw her back. You know what that's called? That's called redemption. That's called Jesus Christ paying the penalty for our sins, paying the debt that's owed. That's, that's the imagery from Galatians is this writ of, of commandments, this, this bill of lading, this, this menu of things that have gone wrong, nailed to the cross and canceled because he paid for it. So what's stamped on top of our bill is paid in full by Jesus Christ. That's called redemption. And that's what, what Hosea is picturing here, is I'm going to go chase after my unfaithful wife, and I'm going to pay for her. And, and Piper said it was, he thought this was more than Hosea could actually do. Because notice he starts with um, 15 shekels of silver. He says, how much is it going to cost for you to come home and stay with me a good long time? Let me pay your wages. Here's 15 shekels of silver. And she goes, that's not enough. I can get that in no time all right, here's some barley. He starts providing more than he can. He doesn't have the cash for it. He's dipping into his savings to draw her out. And he redeems her. He bought her back. And he ransomed her. And the picture there is this, this idea of ransom, of, of paying back. And that comes from Hosea 13. He, he revisits this picture again. In Hosea 13, he says, I shall redeem them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. 
O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So God looks to Israel and he says, I'm going to redeem you from the power of even death. And the way the New Testament picks this up is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is defending the doctrine of the resurrection. He says, Christ is raised, therefore we will be raised. And he quotes this. He says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written. The fullness of this is going to be, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So that's the picture that's, that's here in this redemption is Jesus bought us back, not just so we have a comfortable life now. That would be too cheap. The, the blood of the Son of God would, would far exceed that balance due. What he has done is he has used his blood to buy us back from death, from hell, from Hades, from an eternity. And only his blood could pay that due. So that's that picture of Hosea going beyond what he can afford. God says, I don't have that problem. But what I'm going to use to pay for this is the blood of my son. And that's the hope that we have is that chapter 3 will be true, that we have been redeemed and brought back. Where, O oh death, is your victory? The worst you can do is kill me. I face a resurrection. Eternal life that can't be taken away again. And this is what Hosea's message is, is in the midst of his judgment on Israel, in the midst of the Assyrians are coming, you get these glimmers of hope. Yet, I'm not done. Yet, there's more to come. Ultimately, I'm going to win you back, but not to a pro the promised land. That's not big enough. I'm going to win you back to myself. And not just out of prostitution. I'm going to take you out of the jaws of death. I'm going to snatch you away from the jaws of hell because you're mine. You're my bride. And so this is the picture that we have. This is the hope that we have in the future is we face a resurrection, freed from a body of corruption, freed from the power of guilt and shame, freed from sin to ever touch us again because God loves his bride. Because Homer went out and, or uh, Homer, um, Hosea went out and got Gomer because he loved his bride. Even though she was unlovable, even though she was unfaithful, he went and he bought her back. And that's the picture that Hosea has for us. So as we look forward to Jesus coming in the cradle, we see this infant in a cradle, beautiful and pure. But don't forget, Herod's going to kill him, or at least want to. Herod's going to come after him. And ultimately, this baby is going to pay the burden pay the weight of the debt that is owed for his people to be brought back. And that's the message of Christmas from Hosea. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our hearts are not always 100% on. Lord, I confess that at times we drift. We begin to think that other ways may be more profitable. That one little sin will satisfy us for a period of time. And Lord, as we look, I pray that you would remind us of what it looked like for Gomer to run off and seek these other lovers, men who didn't care for her, who used her, who abused her, threw trinkets at her and sent her on her way, who could never take care of her. Lord, that's what it's like when we turn away and run away from you. 
So Lord, would you let the burden of that, the weight, the emotional weight of that weigh in our hearts. Lord, use the story of Hosea and Gomer to make us hate our sins and to love you more. Lord, we're grateful to see the redemption that we brought, that was brought by Jesus Christ, that he paid the debt we owed, that he called us back. Lord, that he woos us, allures us, speaks tenderly to us. Lord, may we respond not as unfaithful Gomer, but as the bride of Christ adorned in a beautiful dress, waiting for her bridegroom to return. In these intervening days, Lord, be with us and strengthen us. We pray in his name. Amen.